Good morning, everyone. We're so glad that you're here today. Welcome to Smyrna Campus. We love you guys. Glad you're connected there. Everybody that's connecting with us online, we're so happy you found us there and can connect and be involved with us online. If you don't mind, just say something in the comment section there, in the chat section. Let us know where you're listening from. Uh, if you have any questions, just put them there. We'll follow up with you, try to answer any questions you might have. We are continuing a series of messages that we started last week called This Changes Everything, And of course, what we're talking about, the thing that changes everything is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The fact that he went to the cross, he went into the tomb, but he came out victorious, living again, reigning as King and Savior, Lord and Messiah. We, we want to capture as much as we can in these weeks as we, in the next couple of weeks here, we'll be celebrating the resurrection on Easter Sunday. We want everyone to, to capture in their hearts and their minds how much that can change everything for their lives. We want you to know it and feel it, but we want you to share that with others and invite others to come and be a part of that too. I had a friend, his doctor told him that he needed to uh, make some life changes. He says, you need to drink less, you need to sleep more, you need to eat healthy and exercise every day. He said, Pastor Andy, this is going to be the hardest thing to change like that. He said, I've had that doctor for 15 years. <laughs> Some of you got to think about that just a minute. All right. <laughs> change is hard. Uh, and, and some changes are harder than others. And there are a lot of people walking around in the world today feeling like I have messed up my life so much. So many failures, so many mistakes, so many things have gone wrong. Bad things have happened to me, and I've caused some of it, but some of it wasn't my fault. But, but they feel like their life is just ruined, and there's nothing they can do about it. They feel stuck. They feel like they can't really change, that nothing could change where they are right now, what they're going through, the, the hard life that they're living right now. The lack of hope that they're living with is pressing on them. So today what I want us to do is compare and contrast two great failures surrounding the resurrection. Two individuals who had opportunities to, to do some really good things and had done good things in the past, but who really messed up big time. And, and it was such a failure. It was such a, a personal failure that they felt like, at least temporarily, nothing could change what they did. Nothing could turn it around. Nothing could ever make it better again. Of course, I'm talking about two individuals that were very close to Jesus, Peter and Judas. And you probably know if you've been raised in church or been around church very long, you know something about Peter, you know something about Judas. Judas is often only identified as the one who betrayed Jesus. But, but understand before that, Judas had walked with Jesus for three years. Judas, as far as we can tell, some of the details reveal, was probably the treasurer for the disciples, managed the money for them. They would get donations, they would get offerings, and, and then he, he would have to manage that to take care of their needs as they traveled from place to place. So he was given responsibility by Jesus. He had to be trusted to take care of that. The other disciples had to depend on him. 
to take care of those needs and manage those donations well. He was one of the close ones, one of the 12. Peter, we know Peter as the, the great evangelist, the one who, who, who preached that gospel sermon and planted the church. We talked about it last week. But Peter, before that, he had, he, had, he had had to be convinced that Jesus really was the Messiah. But when he was convinced, he was all in. He, he, he was standing up for Jesus and declaring his loyalty and his faith to Jesus and walking with Jesus day in and day out. And he was one of the even closer ones to Jesus. Peter, James, and John were more the inner circle around Jesus. Both had seen Jesus do remarkable things in those years they had walked with Jesus. And both had been given great insight and connection to Jesus' ministry and life. They'd witnessed his miracles. They had heard his teachings over and over again. You see, these 12 were, were given more exposure to Jesus than anyone else in the world. And yet, both Peter and Judas had great failures. Right around the time Jesus needed these men to be there for him the most. The time when he was facing his greatest challenges and greatest temptations and greatest dangers in his life, he needed them the most in those times. And both of these men failed miserably. Let's pick up with Judas's betrayal recorded in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. If you've got your Bibles, you can open up there. We're going to start with verse 1. Now, leading up to this account that we're picking up with here, Judas has already made the deal. He's already taken the payment to turn Jesus over to those enemies that wanted to destroy him. Judas has already spent time with Jesus now in the upper room. Jesus has already allowed Judas to be there with the others when he washed their feet as he had the Passover meal. That he said, I want to eat this one with you. I want to have this time with you before I suffer. And he was included in that intimacy of that night of the Passover meal with Jesus. Judas has gone out to the garden after that time in the upper room with Jesus. He had gone to get the Jewish leaders and the soldiers, and he brought them out to Jesus, and he walked right up to Jesus, and the identifying mark was going to be the one that he kissed would be the one you need to arrest. And he walked up to Jesus, and he addressed him as he always did, like nothing had changed, Rabbi, and he gave him a kiss to mark in the dark of the night that this is the man that you want to take and kill. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 27, early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. <laughs> I don't know exactly what Judas was thinking. None of us do. I don't know what he thought was going to happen. 
when he turned Jesus over to his enemies. But he's beginning to capture the reality now of what he's done. Have you had a failure like that where all of a sudden it hits you how bad you messed up? Man, he's feeling all of that right now. I mean, we've all had moments like that, right? Where we immediately after we've done something, we've regretted it immediately knowing it was the wrong thing. But you can't undo it, can you? But Judas says, went to them and he, he said, I've, I, I've portrayed innocent blood. I've sinned. It was the wrong thing to do. And they, here's their reply. What is that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. And in one sense, they were right. Well, he didn't have to take the money. He didn't have to turn Jesus over. That was really his responsibility for doing what he did. Now, the others played a part, but it was really his decision. And that's the thing that's the hardest for us when we know we're responsible for the mess that we made. Isn't that when it's the hardest? We, 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 our our knee-jerk reaction is to try to blame everybody else, but deep down sometimes we just know, hey, that was me. I messed up big time. It says in verse 5, Judas threw the money into the temple and left and went away and hanged himself. I want you to capture, if you can, as much as we can, we can't fully capture that feeling of remorse for having messed up so bad that you think nothing can make this right. And then let's look at Peter. Peter's denial in Luke chapter 22. It's recorded in other places, but let's look at Luke's account. In Luke 22, verse 54. Peter was in that upper room. Jesus had washed his feet, even though he said at first, I don't want you to wash my feet. Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, I have no part of you. And Peter said, well, wash me all over then. Just do whatever you need to do, Jesus. I'm, I want to be with you. And in that upper room, he had denied that he would ever, ever betray Jesus in any way. He'd never let Jesus down. He would even die for Jesus. And now Jesus has been arrested and he's going through this trial and Peter knows it's not looking good. The people that have Jesus and the, the, the determination they have to, to do harm to Jesus, he under, who is beginning to understand what, this was, what was happening, what it was leading to. It says in verse 54, Then seizing him, speaking of Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed, catch that phrase, at a distance. Okay? He's following, but now how close is he to Jesus? He's put some distance between him and Jesus. And when someone there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, he had sat down together. Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. Ever sat around a, a campfire at night somewhere and you're around the, the fire pit and you can see, but you can't see totally clearly, right? It's the flicker of the fire and the night uh, is still uh, overseeing you a little bit, just uh, uh, engulfing you a little bit. And, and, and in order to see detail, you got to get up close. And that's what this girl does. She glances at first. She thinks she knows this guy, but she walks up. You know how sometimes people will walk right up to you and say, I think I know you. Right? But they want to get a close look to be sure. So she's getting that close look, and she says, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. 
He wanted no association with Jesus at all. You see, he had followed at a distance, and now he's putting more distance between him and Jesus. He's wanting a total disconnect between him and Jesus. Man, I'm not. It says in verse 30, 58, a little later when someone else saw him and said, you also were one of them. He said, man, I'm not, Peter replied. And about an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he's a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Some uh, accounts of it tell us that he even cursed when he said at this time. So determined to make sure nobody connected him with Jesus. It says, uh, just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. <laughs> it says, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. In that upper room, Jesus said, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Peter swore he'd never do it. And as he's speaking the third denial, the rooster crows. And as they're moving Jesus from one place to another, Jesus could turn and look over to the courtyard and he sees Peter sitting there with those words fresh on his lips with that third denial. It says in verse 62, he went outside and wept bitterly. I don't think these men were weak. I don't think they were weak men. I don't think Jesus picked picked weak men to come and be part of the group that he would mentor and lead. But that's the danger sometimes is we put too much confidence in our own strengths. We think we can handle things. We think we're going to be able to fix things ourselves. Sometimes our strength is our greatest weakness when we think we're stronger than we are. We put ourselves in places and positions that we don't need to be in and we're not as strong as we thought we were. I don't think Judas went to follow Jesus with any intent that he would turn him over to his enemies to be crucified. That wasn't his plan on the front end. And I certainly think Peter was, in his mind, thinking he was telling the truth when he said, I won't deny you, Jesus, no matter what. I'll, I'll even die before I do anything. like." I think he really thought that. And believe that. And I think most of us at some time in our lives have put more value or, or given ourselves more credit than we should have for how strong we are to handle things. And it causes us not to rely on his strength like we should. And it causes us not to prepare for the challenges the way he tells us to. It causes us to, to not understand the value of the daily disciplines of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So we're walking in our own strength instead of in his. And when the challenges and the temptations come, we're not really ready for it. And we mess up. We fail. We come short. And it's not his fault. And as much as we want to blame other people, it's really not their fault. It's, it's us. We have to take responsibility for the failures of our lives. Our culture is doing a terrible job of teaching people to take responsibility now. Everybody else is to blame. Everybody else is at fault. Everybody else needs to be held accountable except the person that did the deed that committed the failure. That's a terrible philosophy to create that mindset because when you don't take personal responsibility, 
you end up doing things you never imagined you would do because you don't feel like anything's your fault. Well, I want to take the rest of the time here to look at the similarities between what Peter and Judas did and then look at some of the differences and learn what we can learn from their fall. In the similarities, here's one thing I would want you to see. They really both had denied that they would do this. Now, Peter had a more verbal, outspoken denial, but, but Judas denied it too. I mean, remember this. He had already taken the money when he went to the upper room for the Passover meal with Jesus. He's already made the deal. And he acts like nothing has happened. And he sits there and he lets the man he's going to turn over to his enemies wash his feet. And Jesus, knowing what he's going to do, still welcomes him and washes his feet. Both of those things are quite a paradox, aren't they? That Judas would sit there and let Jesus wash his feet, knowing that he already has the money in his pocket for turning him over to his enemies. And that Jesus, knowing that, would still serve him, love him and care for him by doing something so intimate as washing his feet and having that Passover meal with him in that room that night. Peter is in that room. When Jesus says, someone here is going to deny me, Judas is one of the first ones to say, surely not me, Lord, right? So he's denying that it could be him when he's got the money with him already. Now, I don't know if he had it on him, but he's already been given the money. He's already been paid the betrayal fee that he was charging, that 30 pieces of silver. When he says to Jesus, when he makes that comment, surely not me, Lord, knowing full well it was him. Man, when we do the wrong thing, one of the first things we do is try to act like it's no big deal and we haven't really done anything wrong. And Peter, when Jesus says to him, before this night's over, Peter, Peter's saying, I'll die for you. I'll do he said, before the night's over, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Peter is more vocal. He's, he's more outspoken, right? He's saying, no, Jesus, uh -uh, not me. I'll never do that. I would die for you before I would ever deny you. It's not going to happen, Jesus, as if he knows better than Jesus. Whose strength is he talking in right now? Whose strength is he speaking in right now? His own strength. He's even thinking he knows better than Jesus what will or won't happen in his own strength his own pride. What a dangerous place to be. Relying on your own strength so much. They both denied they would betray Jesus. And they were both in the wrong place when they did it. <laughs> Judas had been spending time with the enemies before he went to the upper room that night. He'd already been meeting with them, negotiating with them. See, if you're really with Jesus, you're not with the enemy of Jesus. You can't be in both camps at the same time. And Judas is trying to play both sides of this. And again, I don't know all of his thinking. I don't know all of his reasoning for this, but I know the evidence is he's in the camp of Jesus, kind of, but not really. But he's also in the camp of the enemy, kind of, but not totally there either. He's trying to play both sides of this. 
And so many people who want to be Christ followers are trying to play both sides of this. We're trying to have our toe in the church and our toe in the world and think we can keep them in both places at the same time. And Jesus said, if you're not with me, if you're not for me, you're really what? Against me. You can't be both. There has to be a choice. And Judas has made a choice, but he doesn't think he has. He's acting like he has it. He's still trying to act like he's, he's between the two. Judas is trying to play both sides. But Peter, on the other hand, when Jesus is arrested, he swore he won't deny him. He swore he would die for him. But as soon as it's dangerous to be with Jesus, he puts distance between him and Jesus. Now, there's been some danger before now, but now the danger is so real and so evident and so right in your face that Peter decides this time the danger is so great, I've got to put some distance between me and this Jesus. And so he follows him, but he's following Jesus at a distance. And so many Christ followers are following Jesus at a distance today. Not really staying close to Jesus. We might attend church when it's convenient. We might go to a life group if we don't have another event or something going on. We might do some events at the church that we like, but there is not that daily closeness with Jesus anymore and how we're following Jesus. When you follow him at a distance, it puts you in a place you don't need to be because your strength is not going to be as strong as you think it is, and you've separated yourself from his strength, and now you're walking in your own, and it's not going to be enough out there with the enemy. You're going to be too vulnerable now, and the enemy knows that, and that's when he can really take you down. Take you down that path, take you down that road that he wants to take you down so that you deny Jesus. And so he got some distance between him and Jesus and then out in the courtyard, he's sitting among people who aren't followers of Jesus at all. And now in that group, he identifies himself differently than as a follower of Jesus. <laughs> How many Christians out there in the world are living a totally different identity away from the church and the family of the church than they are when they're with the people of Jesus. So many people act differently and speak differently and participate in different things than they would. Uh, I'm always amazed when I meet somebody new and I don't ever, unless they already know it, I don't ever talk about the fact that I'm a pastor and they're talking the way they normally talk and acting the way they normally act. And then somehow in the conversation, well, they always ask, finally, well, what do you do? And as soon as I say, I'm a pastor, oh, pastor, all of a sudden I hear spiritual things coming from their mouth that they didn't even intend to ever say. And sometimes it's really quickly to try to cover up something they've already said, right? That they didn't know I was a pastor when they said it. That's why I don't like to tell them right up front. I want to find out who they really are, what they're really like, without any pretending. But see, you can pretend both ways. Christians can pretend to be so close to Jesus when we're together and pretend to be not close to Jesus at all out there in the workplace and the, in the culture of the world where we think there might be some disadvantage to being identified with Jesus. And Peter put himself in that position too. 
So both of them were in the wrong place, and both of them immediately had regrets for what they had done. Both accounts tell us that immediately they were sorry for what they'd done. They, they grieved over what they, were done, what they had done. Judas immediately realized what he had done and realized the significance of it and how, how it was leading to something that maybe he really, on the front end, didn't think it would quite lead to that, and now it is. And he's sorry for what he's done, and he regrets what he's done. And Peter, it says, went out and wept bitterly immediately after the rooster crowed, and he saw Jesus look at him face to face. He went out and wept bitterly. And, and the translation there says that, uh, in the original, that, that it was an agonizing, grieving process that he was going through. Man, we can all look back on some things probably that have caused us that kind of grief and agony in our lives. We just did the wrong thing. We said the wrong thing. We did the wrong thing. We acted in the wrong way. Or we didn't do something we should have done and that opportunity has passed and we can't get it back again. That's the thing we ought to grieve over. There's nothing wrong with the grieving process. It's a good thing. And both Judas and Peter had immediate regrets for what they had done. Well, those are some of the similarities. There are others, but let's look now at the differences. Notice the differences between them. As I already said, Peter wept bitterly. Now, it doesn't say that Judas wept bitterly. I think he had regrets. I think he, he, he was upset about what he had done. He thought it was the wrong thing. But it's not like he's grieving the way Peter is. There's something else going on with Judas that's different than what Peter was doing. Judas' first response is to try to cover himself. He knows he's messed up, and instead of grieving before God for his sin, his approach is what we often try to do. He tries to fix this himself. He thinks, I can make this right. I can make it okay. I'll take the money they paid me. I'll go back to them, and I'll give them the money back. And that'll end it. That'll be, it'll be okay then. Like his heart hadn't really betrayed Jesus. Like, like he hadn't really even taken the action. Like he can fix the sin of his life himself. I'll just go make payment for it myself by paying back the money that I took for it. The gain that I got from my sinful action that I took. Oh, and he tries, doesn't he? He goes back to those Jewish leaders and he goes into the temple court there and he, he has the money and he says, here, take it back. I don't want it. I, I, I betrayed, uh, uh, I've done a sinful thing. I, I betrayed a man who, who doesn't deserve this. It's not right. And I know it's not right. I should never have done it. And he finds out something about the people that have given him the money. They don't care about him. They don't care that he feels bad for this. They got what they wanted from him. They got what they were trying to get. They don't care that he feels bad about it. They don't care that, that Jesus is being declared innocent by somebody who knew Jesus very well and that he's not deserving of this. They don't care about any of it. They've made up their minds how to, what they want to do, the plan that they've got. They're going to keep carrying out their plan. And so he throws down the money. And he heads out to do the thing that he thought was the only option he had then. 
because he couldn't fix it himself. He thought, maybe there's a chance I can fix this. And when that didn't work, he thought in his mind, my only, only option is this, the suicide option. Peter had done something just as bad. He had immediate regrets too. But Peter continued the grieving process, wrestling with his sin, wrestling with his failure. He thought his option was to have to live with it. That's different than trying to escape it by suicide. It's a different decision. I'm just going to have to live with this now. I've just messed up so bad. This is just something that this is who I am now. I'm the guy who denied Jesus. I'm the guy who didn't stand up for Jesus. I'm the guy who had a lack of courage and strength when I was challenged to stand up for Jesus. Now, again, we don't know all that was going on in Peter's mind, but we know that the grieving process, the grief of knowing failure can lead you different directions in your life and how you're going to handle that. And it seems like Peter is just spending time with his grief now, thinking that's just now what he's got to deal with and live with. And maybe some of you are living in the grief of your failure. You're living with those regrets and the pain of the bad decisions and the mistakes. And you're just thinking, that's just who I am now. I am the person that did that. I'm the person that said that. I'm the person that really just messed that up. And that's who I am now, and that's what I've got to live with from now on. I've had to do, during COVID, three funerals that were suicides. And I can't tell you what was going on in every one of those minds. Only God can tell us that. And I know God looks at the heart, and I know some different things have been taught about suicide that I don't believe are scriptural, but no matter where you come down on that, I, I often work through in my mind and my heart trying to figure out why, why did they think that was the best option? Why did they think that was maybe their only option at that point in their lives? I know sometimes it's a, it's a depression that they're dealing with, that they haven't had been treated like they needed to be and haven't, been, haven't worked through that or, 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 or approached or been honest about their depression. There's a lot of factors at work, but, but what is it that makes someone ever think my only option is suicide? And I'm convinced that Part of what's happening in our culture is when you distance yourself from Jesus and from God in the presence of God, you lose all perspective on the fact that there are other options there. There's a much better option there than living in your grief and your failure or committing suicide. That there is another better, greater option than either of those options. You don't have to do either one of those. You see, both of these men failed almost exactly the same failure. Acted out in different ways, but it's the same failure. 
and one is wallowing in the grief and the other decides suicide is the only answer. Well, now I want to talk about the results and what made the difference, I think. Because I think we can learn something here that will help us, but will help us reach out to those around us that are struggling with these failures in their lives too. Because everybody has them. Judas chose suicide. We know that. It says he went out and hung himself. He had such grief and such sorrow and such regret and such remorse that it led him to think, this is the way I have to handle this. This is the answer. This is the way out. Sometimes I think it's just, even when you've had the best teacher, even when you've been around the best example, Satan is such a liar and he's such a deceiver that when you get a little disconnected from your source of life, he, he, he speaks death to you and destruction to you because he is the, the ruler of death and destruction. He, he comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's what he does. He takes great, I think, pleasure in bringing somebody to that place that they would take their own lives thinking that's their only option. Peter chose to dwell in his grief, but to leave the door open. That maybe, maybe it wasn't all over because he didn't commit suicide, did he? He's done the same thing. He's failed in the same way. But he didn't choose to commit suicide. Both of these men knew Jesus. Both of them, uh, I, hear, I hear people all the time, you know, talk about parents or whatever. Why, why did that, those, that kid mess up with those parents when, they, when these parents have kids that didn't mess up and, and these parents must not have been good parents? Uh, let, let me tell you something. Judas and Peter both had the same teacher. They were both part of the same inner circle. They were both in the same group. They've both been taught the same things, had the same example, had the same uh, uh, leader for their lives, and they made totally different decisions here. Uh, we're responsible for our own decisions. So are your adult children and grandchildren and everybody else in your life, and so are you. We're all responsible for our own decisions. And Peter chose, in his grief, to still hang around with this group and still leave the door open. I love it when, when Jesus rises from the dead and he meets the women out there in the garden. He gives a, them this message. He says, go tell the disciples and Peter to meet me at this place. He said the group, right, the disciples, and Peter. Because Peter left the door open, because Peter, even though he was grieved and, and, and living in his grief, he, he was still present. He was still there. There was still the opportunity. And Jesus was going to allow Peter, because he was still willing to be present, to have that opportunity for reconciliation. They'd both done the same thing, but Judas couldn't reconcile because he made a different choice, Peter has the opportunity now for reconciliation. Reconciliation means their parties are at odds with each other and something happens that can bring them back together again. 
Peter has done something terrible, but Jesus offers Peter reconciliation. You know the story, we've talked about it, where Jesus comes to Peter after he's raised from the dead and they had breakfast there on the beach after they've been out fishing and Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yeah, you know, I love you. Three times, right? Do you love me? Feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Jesus is saying to Peter, your failure does not define your present or your future. It doesn't define who you are as a person in, in me, with me. You see, Peter kept himself open to Jesus bringing him that reconciliation. In Acts chapter 2, we looked at it last week in verse 14, on the day of Pentecost following the resurrection, the disciples have waited in Jerusalem, like he said, for them to do. They're empowered by the Holy Spirit. In verse 14, it says, Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. This man is changed. This man is now confident and bold in the name of Jesus. This man is now proclaiming that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. This man is now being used by God to open up the doors to the kingdom through the church, to the world, and all who would come after them. That's why the resurrection changes everything. No matter what the failure, no matter how badly we messed up, the risen Lord can reconcile with us and use us again in bold and powerful ways for the work of the kingdom. Sometimes we act like we're disqualified because we messed up. But in Christ, there's a difference in how you handle it when you mess up. You see, there's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, and we've got to learn that difference. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10, it says this, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to what? Salvation. It leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings what? Death. You see, it's worldly sorrow that leads to death and destruction, but there is a godly sorrow. Friends, hear me, please. The answer is not to be told when you mess up. It's no big deal and it's all okay. That's not the answer. You know better. You know deep down you, you feel bad about what you did. You know you messed up. The answer is not to try to act like nothing happened. That's what the culture is trying to tell us to do today. The answer is to allow it to be a godly kind of sorrow because that kind of sorrow brings what to our lives? Repentance. You see, the key when we mess up is repentance every time. Repentance is not just being sorry for what you did. Repentance means your sorrow causes you to profess and confess your sin, but then to turn from it so that you can be reconciled again to the Father. Peter went through the process of repentance and reconciliation with Jesus. And Jesus says, all right, now go feed my sheep. I want you to do the work of the kingdom. You are not disqualified because of your failure, and neither is anybody else that's messed up or failed in the past either. The failures of your past do not define you in the kingdom of God. The blood of Jesus and his covering defines you in the kingdom of God. You're his child, a child of the king, 
And your failure in the past does not change that one bit. Godly sorrow brings repentance and that leads you to your salvation and that leaves no regret. You don't have to live with the regrets of your failure anymore. You don't have to just keep thinking that's, that's who I am now. That's not who you are anymore. If you've repented and you've received forgiveness from Christ, you're not that failure anymore. That's gone. You are made new in Christ. You are not that failure. And you should never wear that failure as your identifying mark, even if other people still accuse you and use that term to describe you. That's not who you are in the eyes of the Father anymore. You're free from that. It's taken off the record. And you're made new in Christ. You've seen this before, I'm sure. If you haven't, I wanted to share it again today, even if you've seen it before. Just a reminder of how God takes our brokenness and makes something beautiful out of it. Listen to this list. These are people, all people that God used in powerful ways. Noah got drunk. Abraham was too old. Jacob was a liar. Gideon was afraid. Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah and Timothy were considered too young. David had an affair. Moses was a murderer. Elijah was suicidal and depressed all the time. Jonah ran from God. Peter denied Christ. The disciples fell asleep when they were supposed to be praying. The Samaritan woman was divorced five times and living with a man who wasn't her husband. John the Baptist ate bugs. Saul persecuted Christians. And Lazarus was dead. And God changed them all and used them in powerful ways for the work of God and the work of the kingdom. I want to close with the lyrics from a song that was a contemporary Christian song that was a hit some years back called Beauty for Ashes. It's based on a passage. Some of you may not know it, but the passage actually is found in Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 3. And I just want you to listen to it. Just close your eyes and let that message speak to your heart and your mind. And maybe you need this yourself, but maybe you know somebody that you love and care about that needs this, that you can share it with. Here's what it says. He gives beauty for ashes, strength for fear, gladness for mourning, gladness for mourning and peace for despair. When sorrow seems to surround you, when suffering hangs heavy over your head, know that tomorrow brings wholeness and healing. God knows your need. Just believe what he said. He gives beauty for ashes, strength for fear, gladness for mourning, and peace for despair. When what you've done keeps you from moving on, when fear wants to make itself at home in your heart, know that forgiveness brings wholeness and healing God knows your need. Just believe what he said. He gives beauty for ashes and strength for fear and gladness for mourning and peace for despair. I once was lost, but God found me. Though I was bound, I've been set free. I've been made righteous in his sight, a display of his splendor that all can see. He gives beauty for ashes and strength for fear and gladness for mourning and peace for despair. Let's pray together. Father, Father, as we come to you today, so many are walking with regrets and fears and a false identity of who they are. And the enemy keeps accusing and, and, and using people to try to tear them down and destroy them and make them think that that's just who they are now and nothing can change that. 
But the cross, the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is evidence beyond any question whatsoever that there is power to change and transform any life, no matter what failure, no matter what defeat, no matter what challenge they faced. You, the power of your spirit, can bring beauty from even the ashes of our lives. Father, I pray that if somebody here needs to know that transformation today, that they would come to you and experience the fulfillment of the hope they can put in Christ and what he's done for them through his death, burial, and resurrection. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.